I assume I don't have to tell you what that is. <laughs> if I do, we're in a lot of trouble here. Uh, we're going to have to do a completely different kind of show. If I have to explain to you, that is a song by Joni Mitchell. It is the title track from the album Blue, which is 50 years old this year. Uh, and that is what we, we are going to talk about for the entire show. This is the second entire show about Joni Mitchell. We are clearly a Joni Mitchell show. I mean, Tapestry is 50 years old this year. We could have done that, but we're clearly a Joni Mitchell franchise here, and I, I, I feel okay about that. But I'd feel okay about being a Carol King franchise, too. Um, so here to do that with us, here to have that conversation, are the following pe people. Peter Kaminsky is professor of music theory and associate department head of undergraduate studies at UConn. And there's a special connection that he has uh, to uh, to this particular album, uh, which we will explain as we go along here. Uh, Steve Metcalf. Of course, we wouldn't do this without Steve Metcalf. Journalist, music critic, pianist, composer, uh, currently director emeritus at uh, President's College at the University of Hartford. And Carol Ann Solabello, uh, singer, songwriter, and founding member of the American trio Red Molly. She tours with the folk quartet No Fuss and Feathers, and she's a proud member of the Jack Hardy Songwriters Exchange. She also has a very special relationship with this material, which we will also explain. But Carol Ann, if it's okay, I'd like to just begin with you. Absolutely. Hi, so, Colin. Hi. So um, I'm going to just get you to react to this song and maybe what it was like when you first heard it. But before we do that, this is a game that Mr. Metcalf and I also like to play from time to time. But Correct me if I'm wrong. I have a sense that if there had never been a Joni Mitchell until now and this song dropped yesterday or today, I feel like you and Phoebe Bridgers and Brandy Carlisle and Jason Isbell and, you know, anybody else you can think of would just sort of step back and go, what is that? <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, yeah. I feel like this doesn't sound like a product of 50 years ago. It just sounds like if it came out today, people would be going, wow, that's very fresh and interesting. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I heard it, you know, 20 years after it was released and it sounded new and fresh and exciting and, and stunning to mm. me. Absolutely stunning. I heard this as a college student um, and uh, it, you, uh, you could have knocked me over with a feather when I heard this record uh, for the first time in its entirety. And that song in particular, because it's, you know, my relationship with it deepened as I grew older, but um, just completely enigmatic and completely out of time. You know, you can't place it. Right. Can you say a little bit? I mean, we're going to hear you sing that song in a little while, which is a very brave thing for anybody to do. Um, mm, but um, crazy. <laughs> uh, but just say a little bit more. You're hearing it for the first time. I don't know. What else are you noticing about it? it that song in particular, it, it's just it seemed naked to me. Mm. It seemed absolutely yes. naked and 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 yet completely enigmatic it's like what are you talking about songs are like tattoos okay i think i can relate to that and who is blue is blue a person is blue a feeling is blue a a, a, a state of mind it just um it seemed to touch on something even beyond the words There's yeah something I, about the music that touches deeply i think the answer to all those questions is yes but i'm not, yes. the, I'm, not the big, <laughs> I'm not the big expert here you guys are so peter kaminsky you, you she said something about um uh, Joni mitchell sounding kind of emotionally naked on this this is something that Joni mitchell can and confirm and has confirmed right that she was feeling very defenseless at the time she wrote this yeah um <clears throat> malcolm aram is going to be one of the invited speakers uh, at our conference tomorrow. And in her book, which is a, a book of interviews with Joni Mitchell that took place over like three decades, um, she, Joni Mitchell in that book told her about a dream that she had uh, when she was working on Blue. And it's something like she was viewing um, a bunch of obese women playing tubas 
on a stage and she was sitting in the audience, but it wasn't her. It was a plastic bag filled with her, um, her organs, her guts, <laughs> just kind of spilled out sitting there. And um, I, I actually had an email from Malka uh, yesterday saying, um, you know, just maybe I'll talk about that in, uh, as part of my session tomorrow, just like how Joni was feeling. I mean, that's just such a riveting description of the kind of, you know, nakedness and defensive, def, def, defensiveness uh, that she was in. But, you know, it's, it's funny because I think that kind of delving really deeply into artists' emotional and psychological states at the time that they write something, that can be a, kind, a little bit of a dangerous game because in a sense, and maybe, maybe you guys will disagree with me, but I feel like it calls more attention to the circumstances, like the source circumstances leading to the music that was created rather than rather than the music itself. Yeah. So I think it's really, e yeah, I think it's really easy with Blue to get hung up on, oh, she broke up with Graham Nash and she was having uh, an affair during this with James Taylor and all of that stuff. And kind of not focusing enough on, you know, why is this such a landmark album? Right. What is making it? I wanna, first of all, Peter, I do want to say, I have that dream every night. I thought I was the only person who had it, <laughs> except that one of... One of the obese women is playing a tenor recorder, but other than that, it's identical to what you described. But um, I think I was at that concert. <laughs> yeah, I feel so much less alone now. We should quickly say, Peter, the conference you're referring to. You should probably just set that up a little bit. This is a conference okay. tomorrow. Ex explain what this is. So um, this being, your, you've already said this is the 50th anniversary of the release of Joni Mitchell's album Blue. So. Um, me and my colleagues, um, really my two graduate students who are co-organizers for the conference, um, took that as a pretext to not only talk about Blue, but to celebrate her life and music. Um, and so we wanted to uh, have a conference that presented, you know, presented research on her music, but also did uh, a little bit more than that as well. So um, it starts at nine, it runs till 4.30. And besides the, you know, the presentation of scholarly, scholarly research, um, we're going to have two student performances, uh, one of Blue to kick off the conference, and the other is, is an arrangement of uh, one of the students in my class, in my sophomore class, who's a composition major. It's a wonderful arrangement for um, chamber choir of a case of you. Hmm. Um, and then the other kind of big thing here is that at noontime, right in the <clears throat> dividing the first and second half of the conference, the president is <clears throat> the president is uh, president of the university, Tom um, Katsulius, is going to confer the honorary doctorate on Joni Mitchell. Hmm. UConn, so UConn is the first um, United States university uh, that uh, will be giving her a doctorate. Wow. She had she's collected them from University of Saskatchewan and McGill, but not from anywhere in the U.S. I thought All you, of this I, is yeah. taking place tomorrow. I thought you were going someplace else because Joe Joe Biden does an amazing cover of Coyote, and I thought maybe you were going to uh, <laughs> a different president. But um, all right, so Steve McGuff, Steve McGuff, I'm going to ask you the same question, and you're going to answer it probably any way you want to. Although I, maybe I, I can bring up right at this point. 
what, what one thing that I'm sort of sensing here uh, when I listen to it now, which is not this is sort of a breakthrough landmark statement kind of album. But it, I feel, Steve, like it's also a little bit of a liminal album where this is the last album that has songs in it that would connect her plausibly to the folk scene, you know, and a lot of songs that that don't at all do that. You can almost feel her hacking away at the umbilicus that connects her to the folk scene <laughs> that, that, you know, that by the next album for the roses, she's not going to sound anything like a song like Carrie, but I don't know, Metcalf, you're just going to say whatever you want anyway. So why am I even setting you up? <laughs> Well, what I want to say, uh, and what I guess I will say, is that uh, I mean, not to not to play the age card here, but but I think I'm the oldest of uh, this little panel, and I can certainly remember very well when Blue was released, and I think it's important to say, actually, uh, as a as a sort of a uh, connecting thought to what you and Carol Ian were just talking about, and that is. When, when Blue came out, I mean, certainly among musical people, and especially among women, I have to say, which is a, a little side topic we can get to, um, of course it was recognized as uh, this, this tremendously interesting step forward, particularly from her previous stuff. But interestingly enough, it wasn't a blockbuster album. In other words, it wasn't a tapestry or a Sgt. Pepper or a thriller or whatever. I mean, it was a it was a kind of quietly well received, well respected piece of work that that really wasn't a great uh, commercial bombshell. In fact, I think it peaked at like number fifteen or something. Um, and so, the interesting thing to me, among them, interesting things, is that we're fifty years later. We're talking about this as the milestone that it surely is, and and you know the Rolling Stone list of 500, you know, recently revised it upward from 30 to number three. Um, and yet it's been a kind of a slowly building recognition over these decades in a way that I'm not sure I, I can think of any other album that has that has performed that way. It has, it has just gradually, you know, as perhaps Joni herself has gradually sort of come to be recognized as this, as this towering figure. Um, we're going to play another song from the album, a little a clip of it anyway. This is uh, Little Green. He went to California Hearing that everything's warmer So, Carol Ann, so many things I want to ask you about this, but I mean, can we agree that this is probably a song that could have appeared on one of the three previous albums? I mean, it, it, it does sound a little bit like what she had sounded like so far. Yes, absolutely. It fits into at least, you know, sonically fits into that folk milieu, you know, but sub as far as the subject matter goes, I think it was an enormous leap. Tell us about uh, the, Tell us about the subject matter. The subject matter is, uh, for those, I mean, a lot of listeners probably already know this, but she was writing about a child that she gave up for adoption. Mm. Um, 
I, I had a, it, and it would just, to me, this is also in a part of the nakedness of this record. It's mm. like, uh, although I don't want to get, you know, into, as Peter said earlier, it's probably less important to talk about the place that the artist was in when they wrote the songs than the effect they have on other people. But I think women in particular hearing this song, and even if they didn't know the particulars, you can kind of piece it together. And it is a story, whether or not it was personal or not. I think a lot of women would, you know, relate to this, the giving up of something, the losing of a lover, and the, the reaching out to the lover, and 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 grappling with the uh, problems of, of possibly raising a child alone, realizing that you're not up to the task, and doing the hardest thing there is to do to release little green into the world, you know, to, alone with you know through someone else's care. Um, this 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 one digs deep, and it digs deep for me as a grown up now, mm. as a parent, you know. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, while I've got you, I wanted to ask about another aspect of this, which is mm-hmm. that um, there, and I know that this is kind of dear to your heart too. That there's a way in which to, a, I mean, maybe back to Steve's point too. This was, you know, one of the products of its time that really was, I think, intended to be an album that would really hang together. Uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, a couple of singles and some other stuff. It was really, I think, you know, her idea of a statement. Up to and including, and this is a point that I hadn't really thought that much about until I saw that you had talked about it to Betsy Kaplan, um, the cover, the painting, the there's a way in which, you know, she's unusual among musical artists in the sense that the, the well, first of all, she's got an album called Blue that has a song called Little Green. She got a, had another album called Turbulent Indigo. She did a song mm-hmm. called Big Yellow Taxi. And we're starting mm-hmm. to see a little bit of a pattern here. But there's a way in which it, it it's less easy to unthread the musical artist from the visual artist with her. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. The way she writes about visual imagery, the way she writes about colors. I mean, even not on this record, but going forward, I'm thinking right now the image that's in my mind is the the six six planes in, in a song called Amelia, which comes on a later record, um, uh, Hijira. But she's always painting pictures with words for her listeners, as well as, you know, as I talked about with Betsy, painting the covers of her albums. This was one of the few that she did not paint herself. It is a photograph of herself in a blue wash, but just about every other cover, I think, uh, was a a creation of her own own hand, painting her self-portrait in one way or another. You know, Peter Kaminsky, uh, one thing that also occurred to me today was that uh, Joni Mitchell and Miles Davis were both serious painters, have iconic albums with the word blue in their titles. And, and then I did a little bit more reading and I found out that they knew each other. And uh, well, I, this is from an article I think that's about Miles. He, she, uh, uh, that Joni Mitchell describes how he called her one day and said, Joni, I like that painting that you did. Nice colors. I want, I want to come over and watch you paint. Davis, her musical hero, wouldn't record with her, though she found out later that he owned all of her records. He would talk painting and he wouldn't talk music with me. But Peter, I I think very, very early on, she is starting not just to be influenced by jazz musicians, but to influence jazz musicians. That's a really interesting point. Um, I think it's borne out by how many jazz musicians uh, have been interested in and recorded her works. In our email, uh, <clears throat> you know, you mentioned Cassandra Wilson and Brad Meldow. Uh, I'd also call attention to uh, 
the Joni letters that Herbie Hancock recorded and won mm-hmm. a Grammy for, which is a you know wonderful thing. Um, then a pianist that appeared at school, Fred Hirsch, uh, has covered uh, her music. And when we saw him in uh, in recital at UConn, did a beautiful job with the Case of You. And um, so, you know, you're right that that influence um, goes both ways. Uh, Interesting. I didn't. I didn't know um, about the the Miles Davis a being a painter and b having this kind of painting connection with Joni. Um, that's that's really interesting. It makes it makes perfect sense. It, it does. And the fact that he didn't play on her albums, Steve and I know this from our, our Laura Nero thing. It doesn't necessarily mean he didn't like her music. Sometimes Miles wouldn't play on your album if he thought you'd said everything that he would have wanted to say. Uh, and and I, I would guess it was the case here. But I, just to your point, Peter, I'm going to play. This is kind of amazing. All right, this is one of my aperçus of today as I was geeking out about all this. So in 1971, when the album comes out. Keith mm-hmm. Jarrett and his trio immediately, it's Keith Jarrett who I think wants to do this, but he's got Paul Motion and, you know, Charlie Hayden. They go into the studio and they record this. And, and and this is so, the, like, the album comes out. <laughs> Keith Jarrett listens to it for a few weeks and goes, well, i got to play this song. Uh, that's, uh, that, that's all I want for people who are having trouble placing it. And, you know, Steve Metcalf, I, after I geeked out on Blue all day, I started listening to For the Roses, which is the album that comes next. And I feel like for, on For the Roses, you can hear everything that's coming. You can hear Hajira and Hissing of Summer Lawns and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and there, mm-hmm. is, there is a point right around then where Joni Mitchell, it, it, it really doesn't make any sense anymore to, to try to figure out who she's listening to and who she might have influenced. I mean, it became clear to me that, that, that Jarrett right up to Cone is playing piano kind of a little bit the way he hears Joni Mitchell play it on For the Roses. It really becomes the case that this, or you, you may disagree, but I doubt it, uh, that this is such a purely original artist, Joni Mitchell, that, it, you know, it's a waste of time thinking whether she was listening to Foray and Ravel or something. She, she just might decide to sound a certain way on her own. Yeah. Um, I, think that's, I think that's right, Con. I, you know, one of my little aperçus, if it counts... <laughs> In, in just, uh, you know, listening nonstop over the last few days um, is really that I think, uh, as, as, as your little clip uh, illustrates, that the jazz world was really the first, uh, you know, the first sort of uh, piece of the profession to fully recognize the immensity of this talent. And, you know, and jazz people, as a general rule, I think, it is more of a meritocracy in some ways, and they're not as interested in whether you've had any top 10 hits and that sort of thing. In in fact, quite the opposite. So I think even though, you know, the conventional wisdom used to be, well, it wasn't until she, Joni got together with the LA Express guys or with uh, Jaco Pistorius 
that the jazz influence really was felt. I think I think it actually was. It it does go back to blue, and it certainly goes back to For the Roses. And I think the the jazz world helped usher her into the the full sunlight of of the appreciation by the wider culture so that she's not just this you know clear voiced uh, kind of canadian folk singer she is a a you know monumental talent um so we are going yeah no and it is I mean, I had a moment today where I thought she was really influenced by Keith Jarrett, and then I realized, no, Keith Jarrett is really influenced by her, right down to the piano playing. Um, all right, so uh, one another aperture I had today that's maybe a, a little bit risky to say, but I actually think the people who uh, Carol Ann is going to talk about what it's like to cover a Joni Mitchell song right on the other side of this break. But among the people who seem to be able to very successfully cover these very difficult songs are often black artists. Uh, I'm thinking of at the 75th birthday con- uh, concert, Seal's unbelievable <laughs> rendition of both sides now, and Shaka Khan kind of nailing Help Me. But like nobody ever covered <laughs> Joni Mitchell like this guy. Here's Prince doing his famous version of A Case of You. I hadn't heard that yet. I'm, getting, I'm tearing up here a little bit. This is uh, one of our guests, Caroline uh, Solabello, performing live at WFMT-FM in Chicago in 2014, doing the song Blue. We are celebrating the 50th anniversary uh, of the album, the Joni Mitchell album Blue, uh, today with uh, Caroline, with Peter Kaminsky uh, from UConn, who is, uh, in fact, hosting a conference on the album uh, this weekend, uh, or no, actually tomorrow, um, uh, Joni Mitchell's Blue at 50 uh, at UConn's School of Fine Arts. And, of course, Steve Metcalf, our resident. And, uh, music guru savant and everything else. Um, so, uh, and I also want to just do a quick the extra shout out to Cat Pastor, who's handling all this music for us today, despite the fact that she has a terrible hangover from getting her Johnson and Johnson vaccine yesterday. Um, are you sure that they gave you the vaccine? They didn't inject you with the baby shampoo, did they? 
Yeah, okay. So I hope they give you a Johnson & Johnson Band-Aid afterwards, too. It seems only right. Anyway, so she's... You know, she's still amazing. Um, all right. So, Carol Ann, wow. <laughs> uh, that's just, I mean, these songs, they are not written for anybody else to sing, right? I mean, I think we know jo- Joni Mitchell couldn't give a rat's patootie whether anybody else could sing one of these songs. They were written for her to sing. So that's got to be very daunting as you approach it. Absolutely. And it was especially daunting for me as, as you probably can tell from my speaking voice, I am a natural alto. Mm-hmm. Joni was in those days a a clear soprano and i and she would float those notes way up high for me it's a little more of a a, 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 a like a plane taking off to get there a little more effort to get to those high notes but um yeah it was an adventure uh, in more ways than one and so uh, i was daunted by it just to to for your listeners sake that that song was performed as part of a full concert mm. of the whole blue album in sequence uh, uninterrupted by any kind of talking with a group of other uh, women singer songwriters uh, for the it was in celebration of the on the heels of the 40th anniversary of the record we started performing it on tour in uh, the beginning of 2011 I guess 2012 sorry we put the project together in 2011 started performing 2012 but um Every every song had a different singer, and for me, I, I was kind of left with blue. I didn't really want to sing blue because it was so weird and enigmatic, and I had no idea how to approach it. Um, but in the end, I ended up approaching it as more of a um, an acting exercise. Hmm. Uh, I uh, I have a background in theater, and uh, I, I sort of saw it as a, a a cabaret song, almost as a musical theater song, as a piece of 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 acting. You can't see me doing it, but it became it became a monologue. Um, uh, for me, and so that that made it a little less daunting. So I could put my own stamp on it while singing the same notes that Joni did, but not worrying about letting them sound pretty. You know, I didn't have to imitate. You know, can I ask Caroline a question? Sure, you may. First of all, Caroline, that that is tremendously impressive. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I, I I'm wondering here whether for a singer there's a special set of challenges here because if you if you replicate exactly the way Joni renders these very uh, Baroque and complicated melody lines, then of course you run the risk of being accused of just trying to replicate what yeah. she does. If on the other hand, you know, you style it a little bit in your direction, um, you run the risk of people accusing you of not being faithful to to the Joni vision or whatever it is. It seems to me like a singer is presented with some really unusual challenges here. Yeah, it was most definitely um, a a, a fine line to tread, um, which is why I kind of, I I took a different way in. Well, how would I phrase that? I mostly phrase as Joni did and tried to justify those phrasings, where to breathe and how to breathe and to allow Joni's... uh, rendition to lead me like for instance you you heard in that in that last clip I allowed my voice to break in kind of a way that is not what uh, you know any voice teacher would tell you that is the wrong thing to do mm-hmm. but Joni did it all the time and in a different way because her voice was different in a different place but it made it okay for singers like me to allow that to happen um in the place where it naturally would happen and it just and it serves the song emotionally as long as what you're doing is serving the song emotionally, um, I think 
it's it's okay. So it, it made it, I, it helped me internalize what was going on and having permission from Joni to make it sound less pretty and more emotional was okay. It is easy to fail doing this and even referencing, once again, that 75th birthday concert. I mean, Brandi Carlisle, who's one of the great oh. singers of our time, but she really struggles with Down to You. She's somebody who uses that voice break thing a lot, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but she's really having a, a hard time in that concert, really sort of figuring out how to do this song and, and hit that sweet spot that Metcalf is talking about. So Metcalf, I think we should also talk about just, uh, and I should just say that, you know, in our 40 years or however long we've known each other, Steve Metcalf could play anything on the piano. Anything he's ever heard, he can play. But, but you know, if we're standing around the piano doing some songs or something, we don't do a lot of Joni Mitchell songs, and I think there's a reason for that. And before we get into that reason, um, let's hear uh, a little bit uh, of uh, My Old Man, because I think it kind of uh, makes that point. He's my sunshine in the morning. He's my fireworks at the end of the day. He's the warmest chord I ever heard. Play that warm chord. Play and stay, baby. We don't need no piece of paper from the city hall. Keeping us tied I was struck by that geeking out today, Steve, partly because, you know, My Old Man starts out sounding like a semi-conventional song with a semi-conventional segment. And then you get to that freaking bridge and it just falls off the table. And you're not in Kansas anymore. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's just, you know, and, and, and then there's this incredible line that Cole Porter or Ira Gershwin would have been thrilled to write. The, you know, the, the bed's too wig, big, the frying pan's too wide. Um, it just the whole thing is kind of incredible, but it's not conventional piano playing, I don't think. Well, that's for sure, and it's also not conventional stand around a piano and no. you know sing with a drink in your hand either. I mean, you know, truthfully, and and this gets into the to me very interesting uh, question with Joni of hits, because here's this again this monumental figure. Uh, for over a half a century, and and relatively few, if any, bona fide hits, as the as the business would define that term. Mm. But in any case, you know, I mean, you can predict. Uh, I've been at this a while. You can predict the songs that people may want to sing along with <laughs> uh, with somebody at a piano, and and they are almost exclusively her handful of early radio songs, Chelsea Morning, or Both Sides Now, or I guess circle game, depending on how old a crowd you're dealing with. Um, but no, these are these are just not as I think Carol Ann would would agree. The, these are not sing along tunes in 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 any sense. I mean, even even the songs of hers that got some good radio play, like like Help Me, for example, from from Cord and Spark, is is really not a a tune people can sit around and sing in a you know, in a sort of uh, party situation. So, so, so what you said, uh, 
uh, sort of applies to about 75% of her material, I think. And it's, it's both why she's so interesting, but also maybe why there weren't hits uh, in the conventional sense. Yeah, Peter Kaminsky, uh, I, I think yeah. you, you actually are also dealing with a whole bunch of students who who may want to tackle this stuff. I mean, sort of what do you find about that, about the, the challenge of just, you know, trying to do something that is very idiosyncratically written? Well, it's, <clears throat> you mentioned a case of you before, and um, I, th- I mentioned that one of my one of the students in my sophomore theory class is a double major in vocal performance and in composition, which is very very unusual uh, in our department. And um, she has written, you know, I'm a little bit biased. <laughs> I'll freely admit to that, but she has written the most beautiful arrangement and has found such, I think such different things and nooks and crannies in the harmony and the form and the gestures and textures of that song. It is totally original. I just heard uh, the final, um, the final recording late last night. Um, Everything has been, you know, kind of really going like a mile a minute and leading up to the conference tomorrow. And I cried. I mean, I was stunned at just how beautiful it is. And also the fact that um, we have undergraduate students that obviously have, have not grown up with Joni Mitchell's music unless their parents were huge fans and you know they, they raided the record collection and heard it in the house. But they're, they're finding that it is really speaking to them in a very special way. And in, this, in the video performance of this, it'll, as I said, it's going to close the, it's going to close the uh, conference tomorrow. And seeing these fresh faces and hearing these fresh voices, just making this incredible thing happen with a case of you, um, it's... You know, I, on the one hand, music is music, and on the other hand, it's there's always going to be something that is kind of inexplicable about it. Um, you know, why this is speaking to them, and you know why it spoke so deeply to uh, my student Sarah Marcy is, you know, I can't explain it, but I'm sure glad it happened. Yeah. So um, we have to do this very quickly because we're I've messed up the clock or something. But but Carol Ann, I mean to. To say an obvious thing, we're going to go out of this with a song of yours that uh, is influenced by Joni Mitchell, but there would be almost no way to try to parse or tease out Joni Mitchell's influence on contemporary songwriters. I mean, it's like almost you name anybody, Nora Jones, Aoife O'Donovan, anybody you like, uh, you know, it, you, you'd have to wonder how how you could even get Joni Mitchell's DNA out of this music if if you wanted to. But you probably have something far more profound than that to say about it. Well, it's true. I mean, I'm not sure I'd more profound, but I, I, I heartily agree with you. I mean, when I was thinking about, oh, was I influenced by Joni Mitchell? Absolutely. Um, both directly and indirectly. Not that, not that, and I, then I tried to find a song that illustrated that and I really, it was difficult for me to like, <laughs> think I've written hundreds of songs in my life and published so many of them. And I, it was, it was difficult for me to find the, the direct influence. But here's the thing, as you say, Joni influenced so many people that I grew up listening to when I was, I talked about hearing Joni in, for the first time in, let's say, the late 80s, the early 90s. Um, I was also at the time hearing Sean Colvin for the first time. I was hearing Indigo Girls for the first time. I was hearing Tracy Chapman for the first time, Suzanne Vega. All of mm-hmm. these people 
can draw a line back to Joni uh, and, and Prince. Prince, I'm a huge Prince fan, and mm-hmm. he draws a line back to Joni, which I didn't right. find out until many years later. And he talks about having been at one of her concerts, and uh, yeah. So she, yeah. her influence, it's it's almost a fool's errand to try and parse it out, especially with you know with with artists outside of jazz. You know, right. uh, um, it's easier when they when they do something like the Joni Letters. You can trace it right back there, but. Um, it's tentacles. They reach everywhere. So, uh, by the way, Prince not only does that incredible cover, he actually mentions Help Me in one of his lyrics. This right. about yeah. Help, Johnny Mitchell's <laughs> Help Me is on the radio. Uh, all right. So uh, we're going to go out of this segment with Right Here, Carol Ann's song, uh, which is uh, from the 2018 Carol Ann's solo bella album, Shiver. Here we go. Right here. I'm right here At the corner table with my coffee Waiting to be thunderstruck or maybe just amused Searching for some words that hang together For a tune that's worth remembering and Scratching down to use I'm right here Just behind the ficus near the window Thompson, your whole marriage is wrecked now. See, <laughs> that's that's now my association with that particular recording of that song. That, of course, is Joni Mitchell in later years, uh, conducted and arranged by the great Vince Mendoza, a Connecticut boy. His sister Santa used to be a friend of mine. I haven't seen her in a while, but um, so uh, she ran against Blumenthal for Attorney General in 2000. So um, uh, before we get into the conversation about this, um, I want to thank once again Cat Pastor, technical producer under the weather from her Johnson and Johnson vaccine, but we know you know she'll be safe now. Uh, and of course Betsy Kaplan, senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show, produced this episode uh, with uh, these terrific guests: uh, Peter Kaminsky from uh, UConn, Steve. Steve Metcalf, who is our uh, resident musical guru, and uh, Carol Ann Solabello, singer-songwriter, founding member of the American trio Red Molly, and tours with the folk quartet No Fuss and Feathers. Um, all right. So, so Steve, we should say something about this. Um, Joni Mitchell kind of famously started smoking at the age of nine and really kept at it. Um, and uh, this is possibly one of the reasons that, you know, uh, Carol Ann was worried uh, a little while ago about staying up with Joni's range. Well, uh, Joni's come down not only to where Carol Ann might be, but to a considerably lower tone than that as well. And it's a little jarring the first time you hear that. Well, it sure is. And I just want to say, uh, even uh, all these years later, I, I can't listen to that re-recording version without choking up a little bit. It's just overwhelming. 
Um, you know, we've been talking uh, about Joni, and I don't think the word courage has uh, has come up yet, but I, I'd like to toss it in here because I think courage really of various kinds is is a sort of hallmark uh, of this woman's life and career. I mean, certainly in terms of the self-revealingness uh, and the confessional nature of her lyrics, but also as we've been talking about, you know, the fact that at every step of the way, she had the courage to leave behind whatever the sound world of the previous album had been and 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 explore a whole different one. And in, and in many cases, this, you know, upset her fans and made people say, well, you know, she's reached the end of the road. Um, and, and I think that, I think it's a 2000 album, the, the, um, the Vince Mendoza album that we just heard the clip from was another kind of act of courage. I mean, he, here was, there was this woman who, as you point out, has this now cigarette ravaged voice uh, where once upon a time it was this sweet soprano. Uh, and, and yet she puts it out there for us uh, without, without, self-consciousness and and of course it just tore everybody up and uh i i think remains one of the great statements of her of her musical career um but it's courageous i mean it's at every turn she's been courageous and she has just not followed the easy comfort zone path of a of a pop star you know, can I speak to? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, Peter. Can I speak to one other aspect of that courage? That's a it's a really important and really great point I think that you make, Steve. And um, we know um, that uh, she suffered polio at nine years old, and it took her uh, well over a year to recover. And one of the things uh, that was uh, that came out of that for her was uh, it weakened her left hand. And so the fact that she went on to become one of the most influential, we talked about her piano playing, but she went on to become one of the most influential guitarists and innovative guitarists in part because uh, she freely admits that she didn't have uh, the strength or agility in her left hand to become say a jazz guitarist or be able to play those shapes very fluently. So being the painter and um, just being so sensitive to color that she was, she began experimenting with tunings. And so in her guitar-oriented songs, uh, which are like about 107, I think, um, she uses 51 different tunings. Some of them she uses one tuning for a single song. They're one-offs. And this gives, it's one of the it's one of the aspects of her sound that is particularly interesting to me as a researcher that... Um, in her interview, she talks about like sitting out in sitting out in a field and tuning to the the weather and the sun and the wind blowing and the birds singing. Um, so she's in this space, and then the chord shapes and the voicings of the chords and how that leads to the riff that that is central to the song is replicated over and over again. So I was actually kind of curious, um, Carol Ann, mm -hmm. whether in your playing of Joni Mitchell, um, especially since you covered the whole uh, Blue album, whether you've gotten into exploring her tunings. Minimally, uh, because they are difficult. Uh, and it 
uh, I uh, on that same show where I uh, did the vocal on Blue, I did not play the piano. My friend Alison Tartaglia played the piano on that song, but I played for uh, another artist who sang California, and I used Joni's open tune, which was a challenge for me, but I had to learn. I didn't play it exactly the way she did. I have played Coyote in, in other shows using, using Joni's tunings, and, and her rhythmic sense is very, is, is, is unique, really. It's not, it doesn't jive with what I would naturally play, so it's kind of, um, yeah, there's a little bending involved uh, to get into it. But there's one other thing I wanted to address about those open tunings and Joni creating them in a field or tuning to whatever. It's, this is what artists do when they are learning an instrument. Like when I was younger and I was first learning to play the guitar, I just played what sounded good to me. I wasn't sure about what the chord names were or what, or what, what constitutes a conventional chord progression or anything. Joni never lost that which is something that is so beautiful to me. Like, I've lost that. I, I fall into patterns all of the time, and I know lots of my friends, we talk about this thing, but Joni stayed curious musically. Joni stayed a complete open book and allowed herself not to be influenced by the market or, or other musicians, but just to be influenced by her own, the sounds of around her and the sounds inside of her own head, and she had that youthful curiosity all through her career. So we only have like a minute or two left, but Steve Metcalf, one thing that you brought up with uh, Betsy Kaplan was, you know, a few years ago, Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for literature. Whether or not Bob Dylan realizes that that happened is an open question, I think. But um, but uh, you sort of said, well, why not Joni Mitchell? So, so spend a, a minute or so making that case. Okay. So, uh, you know, this will, this will uh, occasion any number of angry emails, but you know, I, I, I didn't have a big problem with Dylan getting the Nobel. I mean, in some ways it was sort of refreshing and it's nice for people of our generation to sort of see the music we grew up with be validated by, you know, the suits over there in Stockholm. But the more I thought about it, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly what the Nobel people thought they were uh, rewarding, but the fact of the matter is that Dylan musically is an artist, forgive me out there fans, who hasn't particularly grown in the half century that he's been at this. Uh, Joni, by contrast, you know, is not only a consummate writer of lyrics and, you know, beautiful word painting, but whose, whose music is, is, as we've all been saying here, toweringly original. Um, and so you have to wonder I mean, maybe there's a maybe there's another prize to be had out here, but uh, you know, all I would say is that if if Dylan is worthy of that, so is she. Um, it certainly is true about the music growing and changing, and I think a lot of people drop out. They they can't change. I think Caroline was making this point. They can't change as fast as Joni can, so they often don't keep up. I, I, I actually think the only album that was a real failure for me was Shine, the last one, which I, I didn't think was particularly good. But everything else, Night Ride Home, such an overlooked and, and really terrific oh. uh, Joni Mitchell album. Love it. Yeah. And getting some love from everybody else here too. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so we're just gonna we should end with a song here, and we're gonna end with River. But thanks very much to these three. Three wonderful guests, Peter Kaminsky, Steve Metcalf, Carol Ann Solabello, and uh, here's Joni. They're putting up reindeer, singing songs of joy and peace. I wish I had a river I could skate.